All right, open your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It's good to see you all here today. We're going to be continuing through our uh, course through Romans, and I have promised that it will take some time, and I've kept my promise so far. We have made it all the way to verses 16 and 17. Uh, So as you're opening your Bibles there, by the way, there's a pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have one, uh, that pew Bible can be a gift from us to you. We want you to take that and use that if you don't have your own Bible. And uh, we are in Romans chapter 1. I want to read starting in verse 15, Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning from a busy week, headed into a busy week, but we have this time set aside to be together, to open Your Word together, to hear Your Word taught to us, to hear You speak to us. And so, I pray that You would help us to set aside those things of busyness from the past and from the future. Help us to focus on You and what You have for us today. Father, we worship You. We bow down before You and honor Your name and declare that You alone are God and there is none like You. And You are worthy of all of our praise. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of our service. And so we worship You. And we praise You today for what You have done for us, not only in creating us, of course, not only in sustaining us, but in redeeming us in Christ. And so this morning as we come to this great topic of the gospel, this great passage in this great book, we tremble and we rejoice in what you've done for us in Christ. So in these next few minutes, I pray that you would help us to focus in on your text. Pray that you would help us to remember things that are true, to listen and think, and that you by your Spirit would speak to us. Father, we dedicate this time to you and ask that you would work even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This past Christmas, our family took a vacation to Canada. We like to do that in the coldest time of year because that's the best time to drive north for hundreds and hundreds of miles, apparently. (laughs) But 
So we went and visited family, and we love, of course, visiting Stephanie's family and, and getting to be with our Canadian relatives. And uh, one thing that they have to go through, a process they have to go through since we have children and we have small children, uh, namely, baby Brennan is the, the main culprit that when he comes into a house, he likes to find shiny things that are probably valuable and most likely very breakable. And so what does grandma have to do? Of course, she has to scan her house from her knees to see what he can reach, and then she needs to put it up higher. Because if Brennan got a hold of uh, something nice and beautiful and breakable and expensive, he would break it, probably. He likes to throw things, etc. He's two. And so she, she has to take care of that. Well, we come to a place in the book of Romans this morning that is valuable like that. It's not breakable, but you can surely misrepresent it. And so, I, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to be ham-fisted. I don't want to be um, clumsy with God's Word ever, and I certainly don't want to be clumsy with these verses that are the theme, the core of the entire book. And so, I confess to you that I'm, I'm a little nervous in uh, dealing with this passage because there is so much in it and because it is so valuable, so important to us. This is the theme we've said from the beginning of our uh, sermon series on the book of Romans. We've said that the theme that we're taking for the book of Romans is the gospel. And some would dispute and they'd want to add this or change something, but it is the gospel that is the theme. And we see it developed and we see it enriched and we see it put down deep roots and we see it come to fruition and that's the course of the book of Romans. And it's here in seed form in these verses. And so we want to deal with it carefully. You'll notice We're looking at verses 16 and 17, and the first word of verse 16 is for, F-O-R. And so that should tell you that it's it's discussing, it's relating to what came before it. And that's why I read to you verse 15 also, because they are closely connected. That word for usually means that the author is presenting a ground. It's kind of like a because. It's very similar. He's he's establishing why he said what came before. And so, uh, we can see that the logic of our passage here is important. He said in verse 15 that he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Well, why was he eager to preach the gospel in Rome? He says in verse 16, it's because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Well, Paul, why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God for salvation. Why is it the power of God for salvation? It's because in it, the righteousness that God requires and only God can give is revealed by faith. And so he's answering problems, he's answering questions, and he puts it all together in this tightly knit couple of verses here. And I want to offer to you as a The proposition, the main statement for what we're going to be looking at today is that the gospel is God's power accomplishing salvation for everyone who believes. God's power at work. And so Paul lets us know right away that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says there in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So he's talking about the shame of the gospel. First of all, 
We need to define what gospel is, and then we're going to look and see what shame is. Since gospel we have taken as the center for our uh, discussion of the book of Romans, we need to know for sure what it is. We're going to be talking about the gospel a lot. We're going to say the word gospel a lot over the course of the next however long it takes to finish this book. And so because of that, there's a danger of that word becoming white noise, becoming background noise, and perhaps we even forget what the word means, what the significance is for us, and we certainly don't want that to happen. So in answering our question, what is the gospel? First of all, the gospel answers some very important questions. The first question it answers is, how can sinful man have the sort of righteousness that pleases a holy God? The gospel answers that question. How can sinful man have the sort of righteousness that pleases a holy God? And so if you've been attending Sunday school for any time, you, you know that the answer to that is, well, by justification. He justifies the believer by faith. But that raises another important question for us. How can God justify the ungodly and still be righteous Himself? After all, if we knew a judge who had a person come before him who was clearly guilty of a serious crime, and if that judge just decided to pardon him, forgive him, not continue with the proceeding, throw the, throw the case out for no reason other than the fact that the judge wanted to, would that judge be a just judge? I don't think so especially if you were the offended party. If the serious crime that this person had committed was against you, you would be incensed if the judge just threw the case out without having seen it through because he would be an unjust judge. So, how can God remain righteous if He is pardoning clearly guilty people? The answer to those questions is the gospel. The gospel tells us that for those who believe, Jesus' death becomes our death. And Jesus' life of righteous obedience becomes ours so that God's requirements of righteousness have been fully and finally met. The gospel tells us that saving faith in Christ imparts to us the righteousness that God requires. Because Jesus paid that penalty for the guilty party. And He gave holy and obedient righteousness to that guilty party, crediting it to their account. And all of this transaction happens by faith. To sum it up, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed in the salvation of sinners by faith. That's the, that's the core. That's the essence of what the gospel is. So what does shame look like? Because Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that truth. I'm not ashamed of that gospel. I'm not ashamed of that salvation that is glorifying to God and giving the righteousness that God requires to the believer. I'm not ashamed of that thing. What does shame look like? Well, it probably takes lots of forms. I mean, you can think it in your own heart, in your own life, what are the things that, that you're ashamed of? The, the things that you've done, the things perhaps that are true about you. How, do you, how do you deal with those things that you're ashamed of? 
Well, a simple example and uh, not a very painful example that I can give is for my own life when we were coming back from Russia, moving back here in 2010, I thought I should probably bring some souvenirs back, some things to remind us of our time there and things that we could show off. And so I found this really great t-shirt. And it was, it was a beautiful t-shirt. It was like a jersey. It was really great quality. And it said in great big letters on it, English letters, so that my friends back here could read it, it said Russia. And it had Russian colors. And it, it, it was very significant to me because that represents a large portion of our lives. Well, then I brought that t-shirt back here. And I paid attention to the political climate in 2010. And I quickly realized I probably should leave that shirt in the closet because Americans weren't all too fond of Russia at the time. And though it meant something significant to me and though it was important to me, yet I became ashamed of it in a sense. I didn't want to wear it and I didn't want people to see it. And I didn't want people to come and comment and give me their impressions of Russia and the things they didn't like about it. I was ashamed of it. So I put it away and have never worn it in the United States. I wore it in Russia a few times. But that's what we do, isn't it? With something that we're ashamed of, we, we put it away. We don't talk about it. We, we kind of cover it up. Right? We don't want, want, don't want to explain it. We don't want to uh, have other people look at it, have other people ask questions. We put it away. And shame, of course, that's a simple thing. It's a t-shirt. I didn't have to wear it. Not a big deal. But there are deeper things about us that we might be ashamed of, things that we've done or, or things that are true about us. And when, we're, when we think about those things and when we are ashamed of those things, it's sort of like the wind is taken out of our sails. Like we feel like we owe a debt that we, anything we do in that state of shame feels like it's inadequate. Anything we might say or contribute doesn't really count because of this thing. There's a hole, and I feel like I've got to fill that hole back in before I can be on even footing. And to be ashamed of the gospel would make us not want to talk about it. Shame for the gospel might make us more willing to talk about other aspects of Christianity, but not so much about the gospel itself. We might be happy to tell someone what is the right thing to do. We might be happy to explain what is the morally right and good thing in this situation, but we wouldn't want to talk about the gospel. We might want to talk about even the historical grounds for believing the Bible because we can look and we can see that it's true and we can compare it with other ancient writings and we can learn all these things and factual stuff about the history of the Bible and all those sorts of things as long as we keep the conversation there and not on the gospel. Or perhaps we might want to redefine the gospel and we might want to make it uh, explainable in psychological terms or perhaps in social justice terms rather than the gospel as presented in Scripture. Shame for the gospel would drive us to conceal the gospel or perhaps to alter it when we present it, when we discuss it with someone else. Shame can take various forms, of course, but I think it's interesting what's true in our passage. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and what had he said immediately prior to that? I'm eager to preach it. I am eager to preach it. He wants to lead with it. 
He wants to make it a topic of conversation. He wants to make it a topic of preaching and teaching with his people in the churches he ministers to and the unbelievers he gets to share with. He wants to lead with the gospel. So what's the temptation to shame? I mean, this is Paul, after all, and he's, uh, we, we know about him. He's a very dedicated, uh, committed Christian, and, and why would he be ashamed? Why would there be any, any temptation for him? Why would he even need to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Well, how does the world perceive the gospel? What does the world think of the truth of the gospel? Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So everywhere Paul goes, he leads with the gospel, and this is the response that he gets. And of course, the reason that this is the way the world sees the gospel and the, way they, the reason they have the opinion they do of it is because of their spiritual condition as unbelievers. He'll say in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So Paul knows he's leading with a message that in many ways is deeply incomprehensible to the people he's addressing it to, and he gets this response from them that it is folly and it is a stumbling block, but despite that reality. And despite any danger that came to Paul from preaching the gospel, and we've gone through the book of Acts, we know about those dangers, yet he is not ashamed of the gospel. He's ready to preach it at every opportunity. And so what's the application for us? It's a very easy one, very easy to say. We must not be ashamed of the gospel either. We must not be ashamed of it either. Think about what Jesus has done in saving you. Think about what he went through. Think about his love for you as he was doing that. Think about yourself. Think about just how unworthy you were that the Son of God would give himself to ransom you. And yet, he did. To be ashamed of the gospel is to be ashamed of your only boast, what Jesus Christ has done for you. So don't be ashamed of it. Lead with it. It's the greatest truth about you. It's the thing that you have the greatest boast in. Why would you cover that up? So let's not be ashamed of the gospel, but learn to glory in it despite what others may think, despite what the world may think. Yet you know that deep down in truth, it is your only boast. Paul continues, and he says that the gospel is the epitome of power. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says it's the power of God. What's the power of God like? Well, it's impossible to overstate the power of God. It's impossible to exaggerate it because He is all-powerful. And the fact that He is the creator of all things, the fact that He is the I am, 
means that all power that exists has its existence because of Him. It derives its power ultimately from Him. He is all-powerful. He doesn't borrow power. He doesn't accumulate power. He is the source of power. He is the origin of power. And so when we think about the power of God, we think about big displays of the power of God, like creation. You think about God creating all things. He spoke it into existence. He didn't, he didn't work hard. He didn't break a sweat. He didn't have to build his tools so that he could then build the thing that he was going to build and it took him forever. He spoke it and it was. That's a display of power that's amazing. So we see it very clearly in creation itself. And then after he created it all, planets are spinning and you've got solar systems doing what they're doing and you've got everything, your, your heart functioning the way it functions and the, the things that, that are maintained in this world. He does that. He does that. He keeps far off galaxies doing what they should do. And he keeps your blood cells doing what they should do. And he keeps your brain working, doing what it should do. That is power. We get glimpses of his power on display in judgment also, not only in creation, not only in sustaining creation, but then when he brings judgment, judgment upon nations. Read the Old Testament and you will see very clearly judgment again and again upon entire nations. He brings judgment upon individuals. He brings judgment upon angelic forces, demonic beings, demonic forces. He brings judgment. So we see His power revealed in all of these ways, but all of these displays, however magnificent they may be of God's power, are eclipsed by the exquisite display of His power in salvation. Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he records how Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That power of God that can create worlds Jesus tells Paul, when you are weak, that's when my power is at work in you. God's power is at work in our weakness. And and what is the moment of conversion but our clearest recognition and declaration of weakness? We're saying to God, I can't meet your standard. I can't be or perform the righteousness that, that you require. I can't do it. I cannot satisfy you, God. I cannot escape my sin. I can't escape escape the judgment for my sin. It's a recognition, a declaration of our utter weakness. And that is when the power of God is at work. What What a glorious thing the recognition of our weakness really is. And that's the power of God working in you 
And that's when that power is working most profoundly. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says that though the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That same muscle, that same strength, that same creativeness, that same ability that brought worlds into existence is at work in the gospel at the moment of conversion. Taking a dead person and making that person alive. Giving life where there was none before. Recreation, regeneration. God is at work making new what was old. And that power of God is at work producing salvation. The gospel is God's power at work doing the most glorious thing ever, redeeming sinners. There are two aspects of salvation that we need to think about, we need to keep in mind. One is the negative aspect of salvation, and one is the positive aspect of salvation. So we could define it this way. Salvation is deliverance from sin and death. So that's the negative aspect. Deliverance from sin and death and deliverance to righteousness and life. Or in other words, it is deliverance from the penalty of God's wrath that's incurred because of our sin and it's restoration to God's favor. God uses the gospel as His powerful instrument to save sinners from sin and death and to restore them to God's favor. This is God at work saving. And look what Paul says. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's to every believer. This salvation, this gift, the negative aspects of it and the positive aspects of it, this gift is ours by faith. It's ours by faith. Of course, faith can be a vague term like gospel, something that we say a lot and maybe we lose the meaning of it. Faith involves knowledge of certain facts. It involves three things. It involves knowledge of certain facts. Faith is more than knowledge, but it is not less than knowledge. True faith requires it. We have to know what we are believing in if we are to have genuine faith. It's not blind faith. It's faith with knowledge. One author said, we must know who Christ is, what He has done, and what He is able to do. Otherwise, faith would be blind conjecture at the best and foolish mockery at the worst. So it involves knowledge, but it also requires conviction. I must know about Christ and I must believe that what He has done is true and that it has application to me. That what He has done is real, it's true, and it's essential for me. And so it requires conviction. And thirdly, it requires trust. Faith requires knowledge and conviction and trust. We trust in Christ for salvation. We rely upon Him for the solution that He has provided for my plight before God. We don't just believe Christ generically. We believe in Christ for salvation. 
and it's to every believer. And so what's the application? The gospel is the power of God for for salvation to everyone who believes. So the command for you today is believe it. Believe that gospel for yourself. Don't just acknowledge that certain things about Jesus are true. And don't just stop at simply acknowledging that who, uh, who Christ is and what He has done is important. You need to trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins and rely upon Him for His righteousness. So believe this gospel message. That's the application today. And finally, the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Look at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What does Paul mean when he says that righteousness is revealed? One way God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel comes up in Romans chapter 3. You see, God is very patient. And there's an Old Testament before there's a New Testament. And in that Old Testament, He established a sacrificial system where animals would be sacrificed and blood would be applied to cover for sin. The problem is those offerings were not of equal value to the debt that sin incurs. Those offerings could not measure up. They were not adequate. As we read in Hebrews chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's because your sin incurs a greater debt than any animal dying for you could pay. And so, how long could God allow that deficit to happen and still be considered righteous? Romans 3 answers that question. If you'll turn just a page or two to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, he hits on these same topics again. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, that that deficit that existed for all of those years had had to be covered. It had to be met. And no amount of bulls or goats being slain could cover that. And so Jesus, the Son of God, comes and offers Himself to be sacrificed in that place. And His payment was adequate. His payment did meet the debt and paid for it in full. The wrath that was, that was incurred because of all the sin of all the people, He bore He bore that wrath for His people that they wouldn't have to bear that wrath. He did. 
Theologian Charles Hodge puts it like this, the righteousness of God, therefore, which the gospel reveals and by which we are constituted righteous is the perfect righteousness of Christ, which completely meets and answers all the demands of that law to which all men are subject and which all have broken. He meets that demand. He meets that quota, as it were. He pays that penalty for us. In other words, the, righteous, the righteousness God requires is the righteousness that God gives, and it is ours by faith. The righteousness that God requires is the righteousness that God gives, and it is ours by faith. Look how he continues. This faith is a from and to faith. He says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or from faith unto faith, or from faith to faith. It's a growing revelation. It's a, it's a, it's a, a growing faith, as it were, and it's a growing revelation of this righteousness of God. God's righteousness is revealed in our personal faith as we believe in Christ and as we are redeemed. It's revealed in that faith, but then what happens over time as you grow in your faith? Your faith increases. You rely more and more on what Christ has done for you. You look to Him and believe His promises more and more. And not only in your own life do you see it as your faith increases, as your behavior begins to change because of your uh, in, uh, trust in what God has done. Not only does that affect you, but it begins to spread out to other people. Just like we learned in Sunday school this morning about this family of new believers that came to faith because of another family member exuding the gospel, believing it for himself, believing it for herself and sharing, preaching, leading with it, taking the gospel to others. And so you see the faith is in, in increasing and growing, not just in the person, but beyond that person to other people and even to other nations. In it, the power of God for salvation. It, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and this faith is expanding. It is revealed from faith and for faith. And he says, finally, the righteous shall live by faith. What is the righteousness that is by faith? Well, he's quoting here from the Old Testament. He's quoting here from the book of Habakkuk. Chapter 2 and verse 4, and this verse is quoted a couple of other times in the New Testament. But what's going on there? Why is Paul quoting it? He's grounding his argument in it. He's referring back to it as being authoritative. Well, in that passage in Habakkuk in the Old Testament, the prophet was complaining to God about the injustice and the sin in the land. Justice is not being served. The law is not being obeyed, and he's complaining to God about this. And so, what does God say? He's going to send the Chaldeans, who were probably an even worse people than the ones that Habakkuk was complaining about. And those Chaldeans were going to come, and they were going to bring discipline upon the people. God was going to discipline his own people by bringing in a people who were even worse, the Chaldeans. And of course, that wasn't very comforting to Habakkuk. 
as he's thinking, I was just complaining about the problems that we have, and you're going to send destruction from a larger and more evil force. So he wasn't very comforted. He wasn't very encouraged. But God had given a promise. God had given a promise in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 5, and I'll, I'll read that verse to you. The Lord says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God had made a promise that He was going to do something wonderful. He was going to bring something good out of this difficult, painful, destructive time. God was going to do something great. And in that context, we read the words that Paul quotes here, the just shall live by faith. Now, there's a lot going on in that Habakkuk passage and translation of the words and things like that. The long and short of it is, God was telling Habakkuk, the person who is righteous, even in evil times, is righteous because he looks to God's promise and he believes God's promise that God is faithful to keep his promise. And in that is righteousness. In that is to be found the righteousness that is pleasing to God. The point that's being made there and that Paul picks up on here is that faith in God's promised deliverance, despite what the world might look like and how impossible circumstances might appear, is the righteousness God both requires of man and gives to the believer. As Paul said in chapter 3 and verse 22, the righteousness God requires is the very righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what's the application for us? We must live by keeping our eyes fixed on the faithful gospel promises of a faithful God. We must live by keeping our eyes fixed on the faithful gospel promises of our faithful God. I said this passage is the theme, the theme passage for the entire book of Romans. And I've tried to cover it in one morning. And of course, because of that, we've only skimmed across the mountaintops. And there's so much more here that we could have dug out, so much more here we could spend time on. Paul's going to develop each of those themes in the rest of our book. And these verses are here to give us direction about what we're going to be studying in the book of Romans. They're here to whet our appetites for the glories to come, the glories revealed in a fuller and deeper, deeper understanding of the gospel itself. And so my desire for us is that we would prepare ourselves to continue uncovering these truths that we're going to find in the book of Romans that will redefine reality for us. It's like, it's like altering gravity to read the book of Romans. And that's what we're going to be doing together. My desire is that we would not be ashamed of the gospel ourselves. My desire is rather that we would be believing it for our own justification before God 
and that by keeping our eyes on God's faithful promises to be with us and deliver us and to conform us to the image of Christ would be ours and on our minds. And so as we close today, I want that to be our focus, that we would remember this gospel, that we would remember that it produces salvation to everyone who believes and that each of us in here would believe that gospel, not only for our initial point of conversion, but even as we live the Christian life, that we would believe that gospel because this is God promising what He has accomplished and will accomplish in the life of the believer. These, these thoughts, this reminding myself of the gospel is how I get through the day. It's how I get through the week. Reminding myself of what God has accomplished. Reminding myself that I get to stand before God even in prayer justified because of Christ. Because of what Christ has done. Nothing that I have offered. Nothing that I've contributed. Nothing that I've accomplished. And when I begin to think about my own contribution, that's when the shame begins to appear. That's when I begin to want to hide from God because I'm subtly relying upon my own contribution, subtly relying upon my own righteousness, relying upon myself somehow. And so I remind myself, the penalty has been paid. I have a righteous standing before God because of what Christ has done. And the more I keep my eyes fixed on that truth, the more I grow, the more I trust Him even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And that's the secret to the Christian life. It's the same gospel that brings you into the Christian life. So my prayer is that you would believe it today. My prayer, Walter, is that you would continue in great confidence preaching that gospel where you are because it is the power of God for salvation there as here, that your confidence would be in that, and that we would have some of that ourselves, that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel, because it is not our powers of persuasion or anything else. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, I am moved by uh, this truth, by the gospel. I'm moved in my own spirit, in my own life. I'm convicted, and I find joy. I rejoice in forgiveness, and I want to take this same message to those around me. I want to see the gospel growing in me from faith for faith. Father, we revel in what you've done. We rejoice in what you've done in Christ. We glory in the gospel. And as we have begun our course of studying what you've laid out for us in the book of Romans about how to understand this gospel and what all has gone on and all the things that needed to be done, that needed to be overcome in us that we haven't even thought of, I pray that we would glorify you all the more as we see what you have accomplished, as we see what you have done and, and that, 
the gospel really is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. May we be strengthened. May we be empowered as your servants and even as your gospel ministers around us. Father, I pray that you would take these words this morning, that you would use them in our hearts, that you would already begin that gravity shift, that you would be the center of all things in our thinking. We would glorify you for what you have done for us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And so may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen and amen. There will be a family up here to pray with you. They love to pray with you. Bring your needs. Talk with Walter in the...